The picture you have up there, some of you will recognize. Uh, it's not exactly a picture of a writer at work, uh, although possibly there is a part of the writer's work which involves uh, going to sleep. Uh, it's not necessarily a picture of a writer. It's, uh, it's, it's a, an engraving from a series by Goya, Francisco Goya, uh, called the Los Caprichos, the Caprices. And the title of the engraving is the, is the Spanish, uh, the Spanish words uh, at the bottom of the page. It's when you son producing monstruos, or if you were, if you were, if you were Goya, you would say, it's when you son producing monstruos. Uh, the dream of reason produces monsters, or the sleep of reason produces monsters. The word sueño means both dream and sleep. And I think this is just there to keep your minds occupied while I'm talking about something else. Uh, but the, the point about the, the point here of the double meaning, it relates, I think, to uh, the theme of the first part of this lecture is really uh, the risks and dangers of reading and writing, especially reading poems and reading novels. Uh, the, the double meaning is this. You could, you could think that when reason goes to sleep, uh, monsters appear. They are reason's own monsters. Or you could think that the dream of reason is to dream of monsters. That is, that either, either, these, are, either these monsters appear when reason is not awake, or they appear uh, because reason is reason. There's a double meaning about how the monsters get onto the page. And if you, let me just put, uh, the, the monsters, there's a, there's a weird looking cat or tiger here. Nearly all the other monsters appear to be owls. Let me just put this picture down for you a bit. Um, let me see. Uh, pull it up. But, I mean, the, these are owls. I'm not even, this one. <coughs> Um, I'm not even sure what kind of animal that is. I'm not even sure whether it's a bird or a tiger or some kind of cross between the two. Uh, so just uh, <laughs> brood on that a little bit while I talk about how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to, read, to read books. Um, anything could happen. Uh, uh, when you read a book, when you write a book, and when you read a book, you have no way of knowing who or what will show up in your mind. <laughs> this is the point of this picture. Uh, later, I'll swap the pictures for some texts of some poems, and we'll look at them together. Uh, this, just to conclude, then, the, what I started on Monday with the, the lecture with the title "How Not to Read a Novel." So, just to, just to remind you of where we were and to alter the emphasis slightly, how not to read a novel. Don't read a novel forgetting the novelist. Don't imagine the novel got there without any help from the novelist. And in keeping with this picture and my current theme, don't forget how strange a thing it is to read a novel and how extraordinary the novelist's powers are. I was suggesting right at the end of the lecture on Monday that uh, a novelist, actually for this matter, a writer of a screenplay or a playwright, can do with one stroke of a pen or a few taps of the fingers on a keyboard what it takes nature several generations to do, that you can alter the genetic coding of human beings just by, by putting father instead of mother. Just a word. You can do anything. And a more dramatic form of this, which you're all familiar with, but we, 
I'm, I'm addressing here stuff I think is, is not only obvious, but actually deeply interesting because it's obvious. Because the obvious, I think, there's a principle here. The obvious is what we often forget. The obvious is what we don't bother with because it's what we think we know. It may be that the obvious is among the things we know least. But here's the obvious thing. A writer, uh, in, in real life, people die when they have to. You know, when they have, when they have a disease, uh, when their time runs out, uh, when a car hits them, whatever. Uh, this is purely contingent. Nobody makes this happen. In a novel, people die when the novelist says so. The novelist has absolute, and also the screenwriter on the play, has absolute power of life and death over those characters. It's an extraordinary thing if you think of it. You, know, you, you have a book, and you can say, I want this person, this person's going to die on page 35. No, no, wait a minute, 45. Suddenly so you have godlike powers of extending life and taking life away. Uh, it's, this is especially true in movies. If you think of, particularly think of violent action movies, uh, the number of people who die casually while Schwarzenegger is walking up the staircase or running down the, down the escalator, immense numbers of bodies disappear in this way. And because it's not, they're not real bodies, we don't have to grieve for them, we don't have to mourn for them. It's not real violence even, it's just on the screen, it's just two-dimensional. But there is something weirdly interesting about how casually you can get a body count without actually killing anybody. Right? You can do these, there is something magical about these extraordinary, these extraordinary powers. And think of, for example, um, does, does Cordelia have to die in King Lear? Uh, we might say yes, because Shakespeare decided she did. I mean, she, you remember, most of you remember King Lear, but in, 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 in King Lear, Cordelia dies not because somebody forgets to countermand the order of her execution. Right? It's not that she, I mean, she's supposed to be executed. Circumstances change, the order is given saying, don't do that, you know. We rescind the order of execution, but, some, but the message doesn't get there. So she dies through a kind of grotesque accident. It's not part of the tragic web of the play. There's no necessity about it. It's just some brutal, stupid accident. Does she have to die that way? Well, Shakespeare thought so, because he's the guy who wrote the play. On the other hand, Shakespeare's audiences for two or three centuries couldn't bear it. And for two centuries, his productions were King Lear, Cordelia didn't die. Right. She, did, she only started dying. The play was written in 1656. Uh, by the middle of the, by towards the end of the 17th century, she wasn't dying in that play. She was returning. The order was delivered. She returned. She embraced her father. He had to die, right? He's the tragic hero. He's, nothing's going to save him. But she was there to hold him in her arms and bless him as he dies. And she did that for another 200 years. It was only in the late 19th century that she started dying again. So there's an incredible amount of power that the, uh, uh, that the writer has this to make things happen, to kill people, to make them live, to give them fatal diseases and so on. It takes, in real life, I mean, the point again is the same as with the writing of genetics. Uh, the, the interesting point is the gap between how long nature or reality t takes to do things, how cumbersome, if you like, nature's methods are. Supposing, for example, I should, as a kind of uh, stereotypical inhabitant of New Jersey, wish uh, somebody dead, and I don't want to do it myself. In reality, it is going to take me a lot of money, a lot of phone calls, and a lot of risk before I can get this job done. In a novel, I can just do it. And indeed, in magic, I can just do it. Novels, in this sense, are called magic. Magic. In magic, when you wish for things, they happen straight away. In real life, there's a lot of intermediary physical matter, <laughs> a lot of arrangements you have to make to get things done. 
So that's one thing. But novelists have this power. They also have the power of making uh, the, these totally arbitrary creatures, these creatures made just of words, you know, just pieces of an alphabet, stuff on a page. They have the power to make these people quite real to us. I mean, totally real. The phrase we'll talk about in a moment appears in uh, Marianne Moore's poem where she talks about uh, creating real toads in imaginary gardens. That's what poets do, she says. They put real toads in imaginary gardens. What novelists usually do is put uh, imaginary toads in real gardens. And that we, but the fact that they're imaginary, the fact that we know they're imaginary, doesn't stop us from believing they're real. This is the truly, this is the weird thing I want to insist on. Uh, it's not that we, we, it, when we read a novel and we think that the characters there are real, we have not gone insane, we are not deluded, and we don't expect we're going to bump into these people in the street, but we're, we're ready to shed real life tears for these people. We're ready to feel ill on their behalf. We're ready to go to bed and fail to sleep or have nightmares on the subject of these totally imaginary people. I just want to insist on how crazy this is. Okay. <laughs> um, for example, in, uh, in James Joyce's Ulysses, the, the novel takes place on a single day in 1904. 1904 is a real historical date. We weren't there, but it, we know it existed it's in the history books. And, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, did council mean that the council the log off? Yeah, thanks. Uh, the, uh, um, we, 1904 was a real day, and in that novel, many things happen that actually happened in, on that day in 1904. Ship docks in Dublin Harbor, a certain racehorse wins the Ascot Gold Cup. All these, can, you can check in the newspapers. The map of Dublin is the same. The hero of this novel lives at a certain a specific address, which you can visit to this day, uh, number seven, Eccles Street. He has, he has a couple of drinks in a couple of pubs. He has a lunch in another pub. He walks around. Every step of this man's uh, day's journey can be mapped onto the real Dublin. In fact, if you go there now, you can take the Leopold Room tour. You can actually go from pub to pub lunch to lunch, place to place, following the footsteps in the real place of this totally imaginary guy. This man, this man who never existed is a good deal more real to many people than many, many people who did exist. And he has a historical habitat, right? He, he lives in this place. This is what I want to insist on as being really strange. And I want to give you one more example of this. This is a rather intricate example, but I think it does, it does some interesting things for us. Here's a phrase from a novel, and I'll, give, I'll, I'll tell you where it comes from in a minute. It's about strangeness. The, the narrator of a novel, the one I'll identify in a moment, says, I trust the reader appreciates the strangeness of this, because if he does not, there is no sense in writing poems or notes to poems or anything at all. I trust the reader appreciates the strangeness of this, because if he does not, there is no sense in writing poems or notes to poems or anything at all. Now, the person speaking is the uh, narrator, the chief narrator of a novel by Vladimir Nabokov called Pale Fire. This is a very strange and interesting novel. I'm sure some of you have already read this novel, but for those of you who don't, I'll describe it. This is a novel in the form of an edition of a poem. That is, it has a, a preface, text of the poem, a long, insane commentary on the poem, and an index. That is, that is the novel. 
the man, the, the, the poem is a poem written by an American poet who teaches at a, a college in uh, some place that uh, is not without uh, resemblances to Cornell, where Underbokov himself used to teach. And uh, it's a poem written in rhyming couplets. Uh, and the, uh, the editor has stolen the poem. He's made off with the poem. The poem was written on index cards, as indeed Nabokov himself used to write his novels. Uh, the editor has stolen the index cards and is now producing this edition. And all he wants to do is to tell his own life story. Right? So the commentary virtually has nothing to do with the poem. So you have the poem and an insane, irrelevant commentary, which in fact gives us the text of the novel. It's a totally crazy structure. It brings together poem and novel in a very interesting way, interesting for us, I think. And at this key moment, there is, this is the moment I want to focus on, where, is where uh, the strange narrator insists on the strangeness of uh, a certain event, I think is very interesting for us. He, he quotes, uh, he, he's referred to certain lines in the poem where the American poet, who's a sort of, a sort of imitation Robert Frost, he's not, as, he's not as good at Robert Frost, but Robert Frost will give you the feeling of the region of the kind this, this poet is. The poet is talking about his wife. He's addressing his wife in the poem. And he talks, he says, essentially he says, I'll read this in a minute. He says, you have an age. You're just the same as you always were. And then he describes him in what seems to be quite a precise fashion. Um, the narrator uh, uh, of, of the poem, Charles Kinboat, uh, has only met the wife uh, in later life. And he thinks she doesn't look in the least bit like this. Right? The, the poet is idealizing his wife. He, the poet is saying, you have not changed my dear because he loves her, not because he can see. If he could see, he would see that she's changed. He says, for example, in his rather fussy language, he is lending a well-conserved coeval the ethereal and eternal aspects she retains or should retain in his kind, noble heart. In other words, he's totally deluded. Right? Uh, but then, our narrator, who is <laughs> no less deluded, says, actually, although this picture doesn't resemble Mrs. Shade as she is now. It exactly resembles my wife. <laughs> that is, this idealized portrait of a woman who no longer looks like this looks exactly like my wife as she is now. <laughs> and that's what he says. I trust the reader appreciates the strangeness of this, because if he does not, there is no sense in writing poems or notes to poems or anything at all. Right? Now, of course, it is strange, but it's also ordinary. It, and you'll see why. Here, is the, here, here are the lines in question from the poem, from John Shade's poem, addressed, this piece of the poem, addressing his wife directly. Your profile has not changed. The glistening teeth biting the careful lip. The shade beneath the eye from the long lashes. The peach down rimming the cheekbone. The dark, silky brown of hair brushed up from temple and from nape. The very naked neck, the Persian shape of nose and eyebrow, you have kept it all. That's the end of that passage. Uh, it sounds fairly specific, but of course it's entirely vague. Right? That is, if you look at what is in that passage, good teeth, long eyelashes, hair swept up at the back, and whatever Persian features are, uh, whatever we think Persian <laughs> features are. <coughs> there must be, I, I trust there are women in the world who do not meet this description. Right. I mean, it doesn't include everybody. Right. On the other hand, it includes thousands and thousands of people. Right. There are thousands of people who could see themselves in the description or see their wives or their friends in the description. And that's how it works. Right. So the, what is strange here, 
uh, is there's a there's a, a there's an uh, articulated strangeness. That is, it's strange that this idealized portrait of this older older woman should look like uh, should look like this guy's wife. But of course, it's even stranger that she should look just like somebody we know. And if she looks like somebody, it's because we have brought this this resemblance. We have made, we have. It's like reading these novels is. We think we're reading marks on a page one after another, but really we're co connecting dots. We're, putting, we, we're connecting invisible spaces between these words. That's how we get real people out of marks on the page. Not because they're already there, but because we help to put them there. That's how they all, that's how they all appear. Uh, okay, so and this is so the last bit on the question of how not to read a novel. Read a novel remembering the strangeness and um, remember that it's, it's strange and interesting that we are able to confuse the imaginary and the real and also to unconfuse it. We're not deluded. Uh, when we read a novel, um, imagining that these totally imaginary people are real, we are not deluded. We are experts. We just don't know how expert we are at doing this. We're practiced. We've been doing it for a long time. We've been doing it since we were kids. We've been doing it since we were first told a fairy story. We never believed that Cinderella was a real person. But we did, perhaps, cry. We never believed that witches were real, but we probably hid behind the sofa when people read certain stories to us. I, our children regularly got, got scared every night when I would read Maurice Sendak to them. When the wild things would appear, they would start gibbering, and then they would have bad dreams. And the next night, they would say, would you read me that story again? And then they would have more bad dreams, and then we had to cut it out for a bit. So the trick is, these, are, these, these imaginary things are real. It's a simple but basic important thing and thing never to be forgotten as we read. And the second part of that is they are real because we are reading it. They are real, but not because the writer made them real. The writer made them real enough for us to complete the work of the writer. Right? The, the, these, this activity of reading fiction and indeed reading poems is, a, is a, um, an intensely collaborative work. Right? So if we don't collaborate, it doesn't matter how great the writer is. As if we are merely passive readers saying, do it, do it for me. I'm just listening. I'm waiting. Nothing will happen. Right? So we, we have a kind of key, uh, intense, dynamic, dramatic role in this. Okay. Now let me see if I can find my way back to something else here. title on the lecture sheet is 13 Ways of Looking at a Poem, which, as I said, I borrowed or stolen from uh, Wallace Stevens' poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackboard. I'm black, black, <laughs> looking at a blackboard. I'm sorry, the Freudian slip is, uh, the Freudian slip is here. It's not 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackboard, it's 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackboard. Um, uh, first way, I'll, I'll run through my 13 ways, but the first way would be, as not that different, Look at poetry, that is. 30 ways of looking uh, at a poem. Uh, the first way, not that different from a novel. And indeed engaging in pretty much the same uh, realm of imagined, real, strange, pretend, uh, fake, dangerous, all the things that I've just been trying to evoke in relation to novels. And here's a is, I think, a very good example uh, of, of the continuity between the world, the world of fiction and the world of poems. This is a poem by Fernando Pessoa, a Portuguese poet, uh, wrote in the early part of the 20th century. 
are just. Uh, let me go through the poem. This, all this stuff is on, as you can see, is on blackboard, so you can look at this yourself. Um, uh, it's called. Um, I, I thought the word uh, autopsychography was made up by Pessoa, and so does everybody else, except uh, Paul Muldoon, who we will who we will meet uh, later in the semester, because Paul managed to find in the Oxford English Dictionary two earlier uses of the word autopsychography. But it clearly, it's a word that has in it autobiography, has in it psychology, and it has in it the notion of graphy, the notion of writing. So writing your own. Uh, writing your own psyche, write the writing out of your own psyche, if you like, and it also has to do, it suggests something like psychoanalysis too, autopsychography. This is, this is what the poem. The poet is a faker who is so good at his act, he even fakes the pain, he fakes the pain of pain he feels in fact. And those who read his words will feel in what he wrote neither of the pains he has, but just the ones they don't. And so, around its track, this thing called the heart winds, the little clockwork train to entertain our minds. Uh, that's a, quite a good translation. Let me just give you a slightly more literal version. Uh, the, the, the interesting word here, which relates to what we're talking about here, the, inter the, the Portuguese word um, uh, for pretending or faking is, is uh, fingir, so it's the same as the Spanish. Spanish word, and it's, it's, its nearest English uh, parallel is the word feign, the rather old-fashioned word feign, F-E-I-G-N-E, which is not exactly faking. Uh, it's somewhere between pretending and faking. Uh, so here's, here's a more literal translation. The poet is someone who pretends or feigns, um, but pretends so completely that he comes to believe that the pain he really feels is pain. And those who read what he writes, in the pain they read about, definitely feel not the pains that he has, but only the ones they don't have. And so, on the circular rails there turns for the entertainment of reason that wind-up train, which is called the heart. Okay, it's, it, this, is, this poem would take uh, hours, to, uh, hours to unravel. But I just want to insist, I want to linger on it a long time, I just want to... Uh, I just want to insist on this uh, very, the very elegant form of this proposition that pain is real because it's not real the way to get real pain to readers is to create pain on the page uh, the way to write a poem full of pain is not to have lots of pain and write a poem, that might not work there are a lot of po people full of pain who are not poets there are a lot of poets who are full of pain who are not very good poets the pain itself is not going to do it. This is an extreme proposition, which is the poet has real pain, uh, the reader feels real pain. The poet must pretend to feel the pain he really feels to get across to the reader the pain that they will feel because it's not the pain they have. <laughs> that makes sense? The sort of movement, it has, to be, it has to be a pretend pain for it to be real. This is, uh, this, this is going to sound, I, I know it sounds a little cynical, a little tricky, but I just want to ask you if you've ever felt you had to pretend to have a feeling you really had. You ever, you ever, you ever felt, you ever been to a funeral or uh, felt grief and then looked around you and felt, and, or even looked inside your own head and said, I really feel grief here, but maybe I don't look as if I'm feeling grief. 
Uh, I've got, here I am, I'm just looking at ordinary, I'm at a funeral, didn't I just smile? Didn't I forget to feel sad for five seconds? No, no, I've got to look, I've got to look like a person at a funeral. This is not because you're insincere, because you're faking, it's because the outside and the inside are not the same. Right? And, and it's because performance is everywhere. This is even truer in, in, in time. But the idea, I think, of, this is not a cynical idea, it's a very insightful idea, but sometimes, some, that is the structure, it breaks down what I think is too simple and too inhuman a structure, which is that we're either telling the truth or we're lying. Right? That, that is, we're either sincere or we're pretending. Sometimes we are sincere and pretend. Once, once you get your head around a little bit of that, you've entered the world of poetry and fiction. And you, you, uh, you, once, you, once you get your head around that, you are already at home in the world of the novelist. And until you get your head around it, you're not, I think, quite at home. So that's the first standard, 13 ways of looking at a poem. Uh, so as a form of fiction, it's got a dramatic situation. There's a, it's a story about pretending, about lying, about performing, about what's inside and what's outside. And it's about sh having real pain, but having to pretend to have the pain you have so the people who don't have your pain will actually be able to have it. It's like acting, right? You have to... Actors have to perform. Um, actors have to perform, have to feel things and then really perform them. You know the old the old model of uh, I mean the old method acting of, of uh, uh, made famous in the fifties. Well, initially in Russia and then later in America was what you had to do to be a, be a great actor was to intensely feel and identify with the character, and the rest would take care of itself. Uh, this was never true. That is, uh, someone like Marlon Brando thought to be a great method actor, he was also a man of great techniques and great skills, and he knew what he was doing. So it was never the case that if you just felt like a character in a play, you would sort of mysteriously uh, <laughs> act like a character in a play, because acting like writing is a skill. You require technique and projection, all kinds of other things. And there was a very funny story about this. When, when uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman was in Marathon Man with uh, Laurence Olivier, uh, uh, Hoffman was deeply getting inside his character and being totally tortured and projecting <coughs> torture. Was, uh, Hoffman was also a very good actor, but he did it the hard way. That is, he imagined he was getting inside the character and the identification with the character was doing the acting for him. In fact, he was getting inside the character and he had lots of skills. But he was amazed at the fact that Laurence Olivier, also in the film, didn't seem to be getting inside the character, didn't seem <coughs> to be doing anything except just doing his job. And it was, and it was better. It was coming out much better than the Dustin Hoffman. So Dustin Hoffman said to him, there was quite a gap in ages here, so Olivier felt entitled, I think, to condescend to him, although he probably would have condescended to him anyway. Uh, but he, uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman said, well, how do you do it? What do you do? And Olivier said, have you ever tried acting, my boy? <laughs> That's, this is a little bit what this poem is about. Sometimes you have to act stuff even when you really, even when you really feel it. So first way uh, of looking at a poem, uh, it is sort of like a, like a mini novel. There's no reason why it couldn't be looked at in, and read with the same kind of instruments of insight, the same, uh, same kind of questions, the same notions of identification, disidentification that we read, that we read novels. Okay. The 13 ways, of course, is, is just a way of talking about there being many ways. I mean, in, in, by 13, I just mean many. 
uh, and I borrowed the 13 from Wallace Stevens, but I'm going to list 13 different ways of looking at a poem just for the hell of it. Don't take these things as any kind of gospel, okay? If you had, if you don't believe in half of these, that's good. If you had a totally different 13, it would also be okay. And if you had 3 or 25, that would also be okay. So the 13 is a kind of a device or a kind of uh, formal constraint, if you like, but it was not hard to think of 13 different ways of looking at a poem. And so I will treat you to the 13 different ways of looking at a poem, and then I'll talk about some of them with, with examples to hand. Okay, number one, we've already seen. We can look at a poem as not unlike a novel, it's quite like a novel. Uh, how long is 298 seconds? Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, number two, we could look at a poem as entirely different from a novel, a completely different creature, like an animal from a different species. Uh, number three, we could look at a, a poem with affection, with, uh, with a sense of welcome, the way we think of the lyrics of our favorite songs, for example, the way we have tunes running in our head, or the way we, we like to go back and play favorite, uh, favorite things on our iPod, like on friendly relation to the poem. We could look at it with distrust, or even dislike, or hostility, that would be number four. Uh, number five, we could look at a poem paying very, very close attention to its form, perhaps even at the expense of paying attention to its content. Uh, number six, we could look at a poem in the belief that it says something, that it tells us something, that it uh, gives us some kind of instruction. Uh, number seven, we could look at a poem with exactly the opposite view, assuming that it can't say anything, because it's a poem. Poems don't say anything. This is a famous traditional view of poetry as old as Philip Sidney, and perhaps even older than poems. The poet does not lie, Philip Sidney said, because he neither affirmeth nor, whatever the opposite of affirming, he neither affirmeth nor denieth. He doesn't, let the, the poet is not in the business of telling truth or lies, so therefore can't actually say anything. That be number seven. It's not what poems do, they don't say things. Uh, uh, number eight, we could, think of, we could think of poems as inherently complex and ambiguous, uh, saying something but never saying one thing, always unresolved and open-ended. Uh, number nine, we could think of poems as never, in the end, ambiguous, as always resolving whatever ambiguities they created in the, on the road, they finally brought them all together. Number ten, we could think of a poem, we could look at a poem as something to be looked at entirely for its own sake, as an independent, autonomous art object with nothing around it, just to be concentrated on because it is what it is. Number 11, we could do the opposite. We could look at a poem in its historical context, throwing in everything we know about the author, the period. We could even look in this context, still under number 11, we could look at the poem as itself a historical document. Number 12, we could think of a poem as always necessarily unpolitical, having no politics whatsoever because a poem can't have any politics. And number 13, we could think of a poem as always political. Uh, even if its politics are not upfront and very obvious, and I'll let's say the, politi the politics of language, or the politics of the self, or the politics of jealousy, or even the politics of death. Okay, so that's uh, again. Don't take that. Don't. I'd like you to take that list not too literally, but I'd like you to take the idea seriously that we could multiply ways of looking at the poem and we could name the different ways we're choosing. That is, it's not, the, the, the point of, of, the, of the sort of fake precision of the 13 is to suggest it's not there's one way and there's not the 3,000 ways. Right? 
there is, there is more than one way, and the how many more depends on what we want to do. And it depends on us, and we're free to make up these things and think about them. Okay. Uh, we looked at number one, and I think the number two, the poem is entirely different from fictions, fiction from novels. It will take care of itself in all kinds of ways. But I'd like to look uh, for a moment at number three, that is looking at the poem of affection, looking at the poem as if it's our friend. Uh, and it's in this context I want to look at uh, the Wallace Stevens poem. I can get it all on the page at the same time. Um, this is, the poem is called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, and I'll just read to you as you will imagine, like the list I just gave you, 13 <laughs> sections. Uh, and like, I think, as in the case of the list I just gave you, 13 is not uh, a natural God-given number. It could be 25 or 28, and it could be 7 or 8. It's meant to be both. It's meant to be precise and arbitrary. Right? And the arbitrariness uh, mocks the idea of preciseness in certain ways. Okay, so I'll just read the poem. Um, Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. I was of three minds, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. The blackbird whirled in the autumn winds. It was a small part of the pantomime. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a blackbird are one. I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos. Uh, it'd be better if I could see it. The beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow of the blackbird crossed it to and fro, the mood traced in the shadow and in the cipher of Oh, thin man of heaven, why do you imagine golden birds? Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the women about you? I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know too that the blackbird is involved in what I know. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. At the sight of the blackbirds flying in a green light, even the boards of euphony would cry out sharply. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. Once a fear pierced him and that he mistook the shadow of his equipage for blackbirds. The river is moving. The blackbird must be flying. It was evening all afternoon. It was snowing and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. Okay. Uh, this is a, this is, I hope, you, I hope, I hope you feel this poem is really both uh, deeply mysterious, hard to get a hold of, and sort of enjoyable for that reason rather than a spite of that reason, right? That is, this is a poem that's very precise and very elusive, very hard, I think impossible, to turn into something that Wallace Stephen wants, wants to say. But you remember these phrases. It was evening all afternoon, or a man and a woman and a blackbird or one. And I think the, the thing that is the thing that to be noticed here, and we can perhaps come back in precepts or indeed another lecture, we can come back to this part when you've had time to think about it, I'd like to hear reactions about it. But um, 
the important thing for the moment, the thing to hang on to, is the sense that um, the blackbird, the blackbird is both real and metaphorical. Right? That is, if there were no real blackbirds, poet couldn't pay attention to blackbirds. That's why the blackbirds are more interesting than the golden bird. Right? Why would you be looking, why would the thin men of Haddon be bothering about golden birds when they've got blackbirds to look at? So real things to observe are better than imaginary things. Blackbirds are, it's a real bird, it's important it's a real bird. It's also, uh, Stevens is suggesting, like everything else in the world, available for metaphor and for use in literature as media. So it's also a metaphorical bird. Right? So that, so that, and it, it doesn't work if it isn't both of these things. Right? There's, there's if you say, I see, I've got it, it's about real blackbirds. It's about the reality of blackbirds. Half the poem doesn't make any sense. If you say, I've got it, it's about the blackbird's metaphor for darkness, evil, shadow, whatever it is, then the other half of the point is making sense. If you think, actually, this, is, this blackbird is both real and metaphorical, it's, it's, both, it's both the blackbird that, that the poet has borrowed for a poem and put inside his mind and now inside our mind, since we have, that's where the blackbird is, and it's also whatever real blackbird there is. So it's supposed to, ch it will change our view of what you can do with birds in poems, and actually with any luck, it will change our view of the next blackbird we see. But the next blackbird we see, I take it this is, this is true even if we don't like the poem, the next blackbird we see will have something to do with this poem. Right? The, the, next, the next blackbird has a kind of antecedent uh, in this poem, and you think, is that really like the blackbird in the poem? Or could I write a poem about a blackbird? <laughs> Is there another poem to write about a blackbird? Or who cares about blackbirds? I wish I could get this blackbird out of my head. Why, what's it doing there? Okay. Uh, now, quite different view, uh, a quite different style, a quite different view of poetry. Uh, this is a famous poem by Marion, Marion Moore, simply called, poet, called Poetry. And in its uh, final published version, it has three lines. Three lines. I too dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers it is, after all, a place for the genuine. So the, the word poetry becomes part of the poem, since I too dislike it. We don't know what it is if we haven't read the title. The I too uh, conscripts all of us for, for part of this thing. Like she's saying, yeah, I, I too dislike it. But it's as if we started a conversation. We said to Marianne Moore, you know, I, I, don't, I really don't like poetry. And then you expect the poet to say something grand. No, no, it will, it will save humankind. It's really important. Uh, it, will, it will alter your life. It will make you a better human being. It will, uh, it will, it will, it will save the United Nations from disgrace and it will stop warfare in every country of the world. Instead of that, she just says, you know what? I don't like it either. The idea that a poet could say to us, I dislike poetry, plunges into a world, I think, not unlike that of the Bessar poem. Because it must be poetry. She, she, there are only two positions here, aren't there? Rather, either she dislikes poetry, she's telling us the truth, but for some reason she has to go on producing what she dislikes. Right? She, might, she might feel it's morally necessary to, to write poems, uh, even if she doesn't like poetry. She might feel it's psych a psychological compulsion. She can't do anything else except write poetry, even if she dislikes it. Or, more plausibly, she might mean, look, most poetry, particularly poetry with the uppercase P, or poetry, quotation marks, most of that is really trash. And actually, more subtly, real poetry doesn't look like 
poetry. What looks like poetry, quotation marks, is stuff like Christmas cards and birthday cards. What poetry looks like, might look like this, three lines that apparently of prose divided in a strange way, divided in poetry. However, she did write uh, this, this, uh, these three lines. I too dislike it, reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers it after all. A place for the genuine is a distillation of a much, much longer version of the poem. These lines uh, come out of the middle. I read you the longer version. I, I would like you to think a little bit about why. Well, two questions I really. Do you agree that the short version is, is so much better than the long version, as I think? Um, and secondly, would, is it really possible to get to the short version without going through the long version? I mean, could she have got to the short version without? Or do you maybe think the long version is better? Uh, this is the long version has the phrase about the about the, the real toads in the imaginary gardens, and you, so you recognise the phrase when you get to it. Um, here's the longer version. I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate hair that can rise if it must. These things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, uh, sorry, Mr. Because, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. The bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat. Elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels the flea, the baseball fan, the st statistician. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry. Nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection <coughs> imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you dem demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry in all its rawness, and that which is on the other hand genuine, you are interested in poetry. Any reactions, any strong reactions to the difference between these versions? Any thoughts? You don't have to have them right now, but I'd like, I would like to think about the, the difference there. Uh, the point is interesting, isn't it? That, that is uh, the double point. There is nothing that you can't make poetry of. Right? Business books, school books, there is nothing, there is no material. It's a very important, I don't think poets have always thought this. I don't think poets thought this until, uh, probably until Wordsworth, or until the, until the end of the 18th century. Uh, and I don't think many people think it now. That is, I think we think some things are naturally poetic. Some, some things are not naturally poetic. That's because we're not poets. Right. The, the, the argument here, I think, is that nothing is poetic or unpoetic. Anything in the world can be made into a poem. Poems are open, democratic. They will, they will take any kind of material you like. There's nothing that can't go into a poem. A. B. There's nothing that doesn't need making into a poem, where the work element doesn't have to return. There's no, because so you can't exclude stuff because it feels unpoetic, and you can't include stuff because it will do the poetic work on its own. You need, in each case, 
any material will do, but the poet has got to do it all. And I liked very much the line about the, uh, about the uh, half, uh, half poets. I think what she's saying in her slightly aggressive way is that most people we call poets are actually half poets. And maybe she's even then being polite. She might, she might think they're less than half. Right? And that uh, half is the best we get. But real poets have this much more interesting thing. And a real poet, I think this is the argument, a real poet might well begin by, by starting, a, 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 a real poet might well begin by saying, I dislike poetry much. Because on the grounds of this dislike, I'm able to write really good poetry rather than cheap or half poetry. I have to start by disliking, I conquer the dislike, and then I find out what real poetry is. So there's much more to say, but I'm going I'm to start now. I'd like you to think just think in the meantime about uh, uh, the next thing here, Shakespeare's Sonnet 129, uh, where, which will be a, a wonderful case for talking about the question of form. It's there, there are ele formal elements in every single line, all kinds of things to think about. I may talk a little bit about that next Monday, but I will maybe next Monday want to start talking about Monique Trong's uh, book of salt. Okay, thank you.